As I said before, I've been out for several weeks, but I've been excited to hear about everyone's enthusiasm, everyone I've talked to anyway, about this new sermon series, Vice Virtues, looking at the seven which we've added to to make eight historically deadly sins and their corresponding virtues. I hope that if you were one of the ones enjoying the series so far, I don't let you down tonight. I have a feeling, though, if you um, hear even just the word of God spoken from his scripture in a moment, you will be blessed. Tonight we're going to talk about envy, though, and I want to lay some ground rules before we jump in to distinguish what's commonly referred to in our society as envy. You see, because I was mistaken um, before I started preparing this sermon, what the Bible means by envy and what we mean today by envy. So I'll tell you a little story that happened when I was in junior high. You know, the best embarrassing stories come from junior high. This one's not really all that embarrassing, except for the fact that I'm confessing my sin to you out loud. So I went to this school where we had to wear uniforms, because, you know, uniforms are the way that you can help um, level the playing field for children who don't have um, as much as some other children. It works, I'm sure, except for the... Uh, kids who look down at people's shoes because the uniform, the shoe is not part of the uniform. And I love shoes. You see my Air Maxes tonight? I don't know if anybody likes them or not. Nobody likes them. Okay. Lindsay likes them. Well, K-Swiss were huge when I was in junior high. Anybody rock a pair of K-Swiss back in the day? I grew up, we have a few, um, I grew up uh, as a pastor's son and we didn't have that much um, expendable income. So I did not have any K-Swiss. I think I remember the going rate was like $69 for a pair back then. We never spent more than $20 on our shoes. Pay less, and even then, the buy one, get one was the only time we shopped there. So I became jealous of people's K-Swiss shoes. One time, I tried to copy them by buying white shoes from Payless. In junior high, that's a bad idea. Because you get made fun of even more if you have the off-brand of the cool brand than you would have if I would have just worn regular, you know, black shoes. By the way, this same thing worked for Doc Martens for me, but I'll just tell the K-Swiss story. Um, So I became jealous of the shoes. I wanted some K-Swiss. I've understood now, after this week of studying for this sermon, in Bible terms, I was jealous for the shoes, Okay. <clears throat> you can be jealous for something and not be in sin. I learned that this week. A husband or a wife who is jealous for the love that is theirs by the covenant of marriage from their spouse can be a good jealousy. Now, it can lead you down a wormhole of suspicion and eventually envy, which we'll learn in a moment. But it is good for me to want my wife, Lindsay, to love me and not romantically love someone else. I am jealous for her love. She has given it to me in a covenant. We are bound, and it's okay for me to be jealous of it. Same way, Deuteronomy says that God is jealous for you. And we know that God does not sin because he is perfect and he is holy. So God is not sinning in his jealousy for you. He's saying, You are mine. I have purchased you with a price. I am jealous for your love and for your affection. It's a good jealousy. 
The jealousy of the K-Swiss, though, eventually, if it wasn't sinful in its beginning, eventually became sinful. Because you know what happened in my head? I didn't realize this until I started studying for the sermon. This is the first story that popped into my head, how to explain jealousy and envy. I became envious of the kids who wore K-Swiss shoes when I stopped just wanting a pair for my own, a pair of my own, but instead, I started disliking them for having K-Swiss when I couldn't. You see, the, the, the biblical teaching on envy would say that is when a person has crossed over from jealousy to envy. Instead of just wanting what someone else has, I have taken that material thing I used to be jealous for and I've put it onto their person. And now I'm redirecting my jealousy of the K-Swiss and it's coming out as envy toward a person. I have identified myself as someone who is not deserving of K-Swiss. And since they seem to be deserving of K-Swiss, they have them after all, something inside my identity says, they're not really better than me. They don't deserve that better than I do. And so instead of just wanting new shoes, now I'm wanting them to not have the K-Swiss. I don't just want new shoes. I want their new shoes. I want to take them off of their feet and I want to see them suffer. I want to see them walk barefoot. Now, I don't think I really thought all those things, but I do remember. In fact, I have a vivid memory, a picture in my head. One day, sitting in the commons area where you could go eat lunch out of the cafeteria, and I can see this group of four guys walking past the bathrooms. And I can remember, even now, as a 31-year-old man, looking at them and hating them. They had their blue polos on, their khakis, and they had their K-Swiss, all white, walking. I had fallen from jealousy, which is usually directed at a material possession or something you can own, something you can get, it wasn't jealous anymore, and now it was envy. There was something in my identity that I felt lacking, and the only way for me to fulfill it was to have what they had. Not like what they had, what they had. That is what we'll be talking about tonight. Are you excited? <laughs> the sin of envy is quiet, elusive, and destructive. It exposes our unbelief, our unbelief in the promises of God, and it attacks the local church, your brothers and sisters in Christ around you, by driving a wedge between you and them. To fight envy, we must accept the unconditional love of God and let it flow from us to those around us. The corresponding virtue to envy is love. So tonight's sermon is called Love One Another. Will you say that with me? Love One Another. One more time. Love. Listen to Psalm chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. As we go through the sermon, I'll be recalling them and John will be putting up the verses um, one by one later. But first, let's read the whole thing. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Psalm chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. King David, if you know much about him and the difficulties he had in his life, he had some difficulty with jealousy and envy. 
Listen to what he says about it here in a song, which I will not sing for you. (laughs) Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the earth. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I have a couple of points for you. They won't be on the screen, but you're invited to take notes on your phone or even on the worship folder you handed when you walked in. Just three things about envy that we can learn that can help us in our daily struggle. The first is this. might be a self-explanatory statement, but envy is a miserable vice. Envy is a miserable vice. In fact, it has been said, of all the vices, only envy is no fun at all. Only envy doesn't have even an ounce of fun in it. It's not fun for you. It's not fun for the people you're envious of or the status you're envious of. It's miserable. So number one tonight, envy is a miserable vice. There's certainly reasons for this that we'll talk about. But the most important one is that envy is miserable because it undercuts everything that is good. God's love for you, your love for you, which flows perfectly out of his love for you, and your love for others. All these good things, it undercuts all of them. An envious person is denying all of those truths. When you are lost in the sin of envy, when I fall to the temptation of being envious of others, I am denying the truth that God loves me. I am denying the truth that because of his love, I am supposed to love myself. And I'm denying the truth that because of those loves, I'm supposed to love others as I love myself. I'm living in a state of complete denial of everything that causes good in our lives. Envy is also miserable because it is isolating. Rarely does a person admit, even to themselves, much less to others, that they are envious. Think about it for a moment. When was the last time you said a sentence in your head, something like this? God, I confess that I am envious 
of that person. Envy is isolating because we rarely even admit it to ourselves. We certainly can't remember a time when we were sitting at Brooklyn Bagel saying, oh, hey, Nathan, I wanted to let you know, you know, I was envious of you and I was starting to um, disdain you because your shirts are always cooler than mine. And I was starting to think that was too close to home because Nathan's sitting right there in a cool shirt, right? We don't have conversations like this. We don't talk to people about our envy. It's isolating. Some of these other vices that Daniel and John have preached about are very public, can be very public. And sure, envy can become public, but by the time it has gotten out, it's transitioned to its uglier cousin, hatred, which has an even uglier end. The Bible teaches us very, very beginning of the book how this goes. Jealousy turns to envy, turns to hatred, turns to murder in the story of the first two sons on earth. Envy is quiet, though. It's isolating. We don't talk about it. It's also miserable because of this. It never rests. Envy will never give you a day off. Even when you or I, as the person who is envious, gets what we think we wanted, we don't find rest. I want to illustrate this with a TV show called Bloodline. This show, uh, there are spoiler alerts in this, so if you just need to excuse yourself, go for it. The show chronicles a family, the Rayburns. This family has... Um, several siblings, and John, the lead character in the show, and his siblings, they always had an easy life, right? Until their, their brother came into the picture, back into the picture, and he started ruining things. Then you find out, actually, he had ruined things all along. That was the reason he wasn't in the picture at the beginning of the show. They had always compared themselves. You're, you're reading into this in the show how all these siblings had always compared themselves to this prodigal brother who had gone away. They had always thought how irresponsible it was that he wasted the family fortune. He never had to face the consequences for it. They resented him for that. And in fact, to make things worse, they saw that they had actually experienced consequences because of his actions. So the negative things he ran from, they had to deal with. And you see, they begin to compare their stress-filled lives with his easygoing nature, like nothing's wrong. And what happened when they began to compare their lives, which are full of stress and anxiety because of all these things he's done, with how easily he handles everything? They began to be envious of this apathetic way about, about with which he went his life. They followed this comparison into the sin of envy. They followed envy down its natural course to hatred. Here's where the spoiler comes. And eventually murder. They thought if Danny, the problem child, was just dead, if he was just gone, all of our problems will be solved. 
They could finally have the life they all deserve. This is the lie the elusive envy was telling them, right? You can already see it. You know that's not true. But when you're caught up in envy, these lies seem so real because it's isolating. You're not talking about it. It's in your head. They played it up in their head. They followed it, and you know what happens. The irony is they followed their comparison of envy and hatred to its dark end murder, all while seeking their own easygoing life, and now their life is filled with more immeasurable stress than they could have ever imagined. Envy doesn't rest. Even when you you take it all the way to its end, through hatred, into murder, you put it to bed, envy is still there. Poison in your bones. Torturing your sleep. Affecting your work, your relationships. See, not only is envy miserable, though, it's also unbelief. First point was that envy is miserable. We saw in several ways it's miserable because it's isolating, it's no fun at all, it never rests. But envy is not just miserable, envy is unbelief. Envy exposes unbelief in our lives in several areas. Envy exposes unbelief in the sovereignty of God. We get fooled into thinking that we know better, that I should have K-Swiss, that my life should be easier than my brother's, that I do all the work at work, and I deserve the praise that coworker who's on their phone all day not doing anything is actually getting. Envy tells lies, and one of them is the lie of unbelief that God is sovereign. We begin to forget that God is sovereign over all things, and we can rest and be content in, his, in the position that he has placed us in. Envy is also unbelief in God's provision. You know what got me through all 13 years of primary school? tennis shoes. You know what I never was? Thankful to God that I had shoes on my feet. Envy robbed me of believing in God for his provision. He took care of our family. I had shoes on my feet. That can't be said of many. You see how unbelief crept in because envy was ruling in my heart. It's unbelief in God's provision. It's also unbelief in God's providence. This is similar to sovereignty. Sovereignty is about how God places us where we are and he is over us. That he is in control and we can defer to him. We can say, if I don't have, trusting God's sovereignty is saying, if I don't have K-Swiss shoes, I know I can trust that will be okay because I know God is for me, not against me. That's a verbal affirmation of your trust in God's sovereignty, right? So providence is a little bit different. Providence is about timing and positioning. So when envy robs you of the unbelief, when envy is unbelief in God's providence, what it means is it's not that you don't believe that God can do it. It's that you believe God is not doing it. 
You don't believe he's providential. You believe that you actually have to go out and accomplish what it is that you desire. What probably began as jealousy or a simple comparison that now has become an envious ruling in your heart, you must go and get it yourself because we don't trust God's providence, His timing, His ability to accomplish it in His time and for His glory. Envy is unbelief in God's providence. One last unbelief. It's also unbelief in the body of Christ. At the beginning, I read that statement about uh, envy attacking the local church by driving a wedge between brothers and sisters in Christ. You can probably already see, just from this beginning 10 minutes of the sermon, how easily it would be for the enemy to use envy as a tool of division between people who are brothers and sisters in Christ who have covenanted together to seek the good of the city which God has sent them. So here at Connection Church, we need to be a people who are honest about the temptations toward envy we have, not just to ourselves, but to one another. I have to trust that my brother Nathan would receive well a confession of mine of envy. The moment we stop trusting that, is the moment we begin to be silent. Because we think, well, what if that damages our relationship? What if he doesn't want to be friends with me anymore? What if he tells other people and gossips about me? You see, these what ifs usually hedge us in closer and closer and closer to isolation. What we need to remember, though, is that envy is unbelief in the body of Christ. The body of Christ is somewhere that is safe to share confessions. It is safe to go to someone, even when you see sin in their life, when you're not confessing your own sin, with gentleness and humility. Envy can be fought against, even in the local body of believers, and especially in this place. I invite you and me, church, into an open envy conversation so that we believe what the body of Christ truly is, which is a gift to our city. Envy is miserable. Envy is unbelief. And there are six reasons listed here that we should not live in unbelief. This is where I'm going to ask John to go to some verses. First, verse number two. Listen to this real fast. I'm going to shoot these at you, okay? Number one, this is a reason... This is a reason to believe, right? I said envy is unbelief. This is a reason that you don't have to live in that unbelief. Number one, for they, the people you are envious of, the evildoer in this story, they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Their day is not forever. We, as the people of God, are called to an eternal perspective, trusting in God's sovereignty that he will bring all things together for his good. We don't need to look at the evildoer who prospers and then be envious of that. We need to say, no, the evildoer will not win. 
This moment on stage a moment ago is, is perfect. We don't read a resolution like that with hopelessness. No, with victory. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. There will not be racism in heaven. The new heaven and the new earth will be a place where people from all nations come together, see the beauty of God displayed by the image they are looking at, and worship the Creator. This is the hope. This is why we can't live in unbelief. Because evil does not win. Number two. I said I was going to shoot that at you really fast, and then I didn't. Number two. Um, we trust in the Lord and do good. Verse three. Why not believe? Because we can trust in the Lord and do good. And then here's the promise. Listen to this. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. When we don't live in unbelief, when we don't have envy, uh, David is putting trust up against envy here. He's saying, instead of envy, trust in the Lord. All those things I said we were not believing. God's providence, God's provision, God's sovereignty. Trust in the Lord for those things and you will dwell in the land. You will befriend faithfulness. Don't live in unbelief because God has promises for you when you trust him. Verse number four, delight yourself in the Lord. This is number three. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Why not live in unbelief? Because God will give you the desires of your heart. You don't need to spend time wallowing in the sin of envy toward others. You need to give that desire to God and say, God, I am deeply wanting ill toward this person. And it is based on a status symbol that they have that I don't because they drive a nicer car than me and wear better clothes than me. And I feel insecure about who I am because I'm looking to them and I want to be like them. So much so that now I want them to crumble and me to win. You name that to God. Confess it to him. And you delight yourself in the Lord because the Lord looks at you and says, Oh, son, daughter, you are loved. You are clothed with the riches in Christ Jesus. All the glory and all of creation cannot compare to what I have given you in Christ Jesus. Delight in me. And I will give you the desires of your heart. That is the truth. You preach to yourself when envy creeps in. But we can't do it if we keep it silent. It starts with confession. It's the fourth reason not to, um, <clears throat> that's the fourth reason that unbelief is wrong. We have promises in God. Verse number five, the last few words of this. And he will act. Everybody say act. He will act. What will he do? Verse six. He will bring forth righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Some have said, in my sphere of influence this week, what good does it do to pray for things like racism and alt-right and white supremacy to end? It hasn't ended for generations. You may be asking yourself the same question. What good is it? Is it just for show? Why do we do this? Why pray? Why not act instead? God says, listen, that's backwards. You trust in me. Delight in me. I will give you the desires of your heart. 
That desire happens to be one that's right in line with my plan for the world. Justice and righteousness will be brought forth as I, God the Father, act on their behalf. How does he do that? By unleashing the power of the local body of Christ to live as neighbors to people who think differently about these issues and to look each of them, the neighbor on the right who's in the alt-right and the neighbor on the left who is very strongly victimized by them, we stand in the middle and look at both of them and say, I love you, God loves you, and I live here for your good, not my own. When we do that, church, God brings forth righteousness and justice in our neighborhoods, on our blocks, in our city, in Astoria. It is safe to say, Connection Church, Astoria Community Church, Hope Church Astoria, City Light Church, Roots NYC, and some others that I can't think of off the top of my head, exist in the neighborhood of Astoria to be the antithesis to everything that is happening that is evil in our society. Jesus calls it the light, a city set on a hill. You are the light. God will give you the desires of your heart. When we step away from envy, we step away from comparison, and we live in truth. That was the fourth. The fifth is in verse nine. For the evildoers shall be cut off. Here's a promise. Why you don't have to live in this unbelief. Because those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Jesus says it later in the Beatitudes. The meek will inherit the earth. David, he echoes David in a few verses. Next, number six, 11. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Don't confuse meek with weak. Meek is not someone who is weak. Meek is someone who, who has all of the power they need. In this case, given by the almighty creator of God, the power of God almighty. And it is dispersed specifically with laser focus on injustice and unrighteousness and hatred. Those are six reasons listed here by King David that we should not live in unbelief. If you didn't catch them all, go back and read Psalm 37, 1 through 11. They're right there. Six reasons not to live in the unbelief of envy. Envy is miserable. Envy is unbelief. And finally, love destroys envy. Here's how. When we receive unconditional love from God, you receive the unconditional love as God has given you. Who did God give the unconditional love to? It was read very well by Johnny, Manu, Lindsay, and Angela earlier. I don't know if you heard it or not, but it's everyone. Everybody say everyone with me. Everyone. God gave his unconditional love to everyone. When you receive that love by grace through faith, you have no need, say no need, no need to fill yourself with vain glory from earthly status or the appreciation of people on earth. When you are filled with the love of God, you have no need for vain glory, which is another semi-vice related to envy. Envy is dirty, I'm telling you. 
comparison, jelly, je- jealousy, vainglory, hatred, murder, they all come from envy. They're related. Back to bloodline. A few seasons later, during a moment of confession with a priest, the matriarch of this family, the Rayborn family, who is now, she knows what's happened. She's the mother of children who have murdered one of her own. She describes to the priest how she is tormented by her children's depravity. She even exclaims after a few moments of outrage, sometimes I hate them. She asks the priest, what do I do? How do I fix this? He replies, when God saw the sin of his children, when he saw his children murdering one another and came face to face with how much he, God, hated who his children had become, he had two choices. Destroy them or die for them. The show leaves you on a cliffhanger, but I will not. It is very true that God saw that distinction like the priest described. And he did have those two choices before him. And God, in his holiness, chose to die for them. In doing so, God, your Father, showed you the love that you need to destroy envy in your life. How do I stop envying others? You die for them. We, church, must be willing to lay down our lives, our desires, our ambitions for the good of others. When you love someone, you cannot envy them. They don't work together. You envy not people you love, but people who you are well on your way to hating. As we see Christ in a moment through communion, dying for us, I want to remind you of something C.S. Lewis teaches about love and hate. Because we seem to think they're so far apart from one another. But if you feel lost in envy towards someone, like you're already down the wormhole and headed toward hatred or firmly there and headed toward the next step, you can talk to me at the back. 
That next step was murder. If that is you, and you feel hopeless, C.S. Lewis says, listen, we have it skewed. Love and hate are not on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they are just at the peak of a mountain, closely related. And the more passionately we hate someone or love someone, the more close we are to tipping to the other one. You may have noticed this in some of your relationships. Someone who you were head over heels in love with, so passionate about, you loved them with everything you had. They broke your heart. And so easily you were switched to hatred toward them. Or the other, what he describes is a woman who just cannot stand some man in her life. She doesn't like the way he dresses. She doesn't like the way he acts toward others. She doesn't like the way he speaks to her. She doesn't like the way he looks. She is so passionately hating him. He says, all it takes sometimes is for that woman to see that man walk over to someone in need, kneel down, show them love and compassion. And she says, maybe he's not as bad as I thought. If you're lost in hatred and envy toward others, you need to look at them like Christ sees you. I need to die for them and be raised to life, abundant life, showing love and kindness and all that is good that God has given you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have taught us so well from your word and by the power of your spirit that when we feel lost, that is when you find us best. So God, I pray that tonight you would give us clarity in our confessions, that we would look into our hearts, probe and dig and find where we are envious, jealous, and comparing others, where we hate others, and that you would root those out through honest and clear confession, backing them up with your promises, that when we delight ourselves in you, you will lift us up, that you will act for righteousness and justice. God, unleash your love on us so that we will not have to seek to be lifted up by man's praise. We will not have to seek status or symbols that we find to give us glory, but that we would receive your love and be confident in who we are, chosen and holy, the priesthood of the believers of God. You are our king. We submit to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.